Let me start us off just by saying that we are infinitely grateful to have the legend himself, Todd Underwood, with us. I am joined by none other than Vishnu. He is making another cameo. David or our other amigo David couldn't be here today because I'm going to throw him under the bus right now. His wife is taking a legal exam and told him that he cannot be on a talk while she has taken the exam because it would distract her. So he's that sitting seems at home. Legit. That just seems legit. I'm, I'm in favor of this. <laughs> exactly. It is definitely a legit excuse. It is also completely driven by work from home life. Mm. Yeah, I can't think absolutely. of a more, cannot think of a more work from home life thing. <laughs> Problem. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. You may see it's the, the way that it works, right? Like you may see my daughter pop up into the screen and, that's just life these days. 2020 has been like that. Yeah. yeah. So, Todd, this is going to be a bit of like a, a parallel conversation, I think, or like a perpendicular conversation. <laughs> you can tell that I know my geometry quite well, obviously. But I've been enjoying two of your, I think it's the OpML talks that you gave. One was at like SRE Con, and the other was fairly recently uh, about how machine learning breaks. And so I want to kind of weave both of those into this conversation and just have this be like the after hours session of those talks, yeah. if that's cool with you. Absolutely. I think we should probably start though, just by giving people a bit of background on what you're doing, what you've been up to for the last 10 years. I know you have over a decade of experience working at Google and you're currently doing a lot of stuff around the maintenance of machine learning and is, I think your technical title is SRE of ML. Is that it? Yeah. So. Yeah. So um, a little bit of context. So uh, I came to Google here in the Pittsburgh office in uh, the Eastern part of the U S um, people outside of the U S don't really know that much about Pittsburgh, uh, but it's a sort of a ex industrial city um, it's sort of the Sheffield of the U.S. if you want to map it into the U.K., uh, maybe Leiden, I'm not sure. But uh, an old steel town, part of the U.S. Rust Belt, um, and a pretty storied tradition here of, you know, sort of hard industrial work, but really hit hard during the economic downturn, uh, you know, when steel started internationalizing and, um, you know, the U.S. lost most of its steel manufacturing, really impacted this whole region of the U.S. And Pittsburgh pivoted hard into education, uh, in particular, the medical industry and higher education. They already had Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon University. I didn't go there. Uh, I'm supposed to be sad about that. They're the number one alumnus <laughs> institution for Google um, for the engineering organization, like more than Caltech, more than Stanford. It comes from CMU. Wow, um, I, I didn't know that, considering yeah, it's not the biggest school in the world. <laughs> wow, no, not crazy. at all. Not at all. I think, uh, you know, what I've learned uh, since being here is um, CMU's had a really different approach to computer science for a long time, and its approach to other schools are starting to pick up. So most sort of institutions of higher education treated uh, computer science either as an offshoot of math or an offshoot of general engineering. And they're like, oh, you can have a little department inside of a school of engineering. What Carnegie Mellon did is they said, no, we're going to set up an entire school of computer science with sub-departments for robotics, for machine learning, for 
you know, uh, biotechnology, for technology related to business and related to society yeah. and government. And so they had this very much applied notion that we are developing cure algorithms, we are looking at, you know, core technology, but ultimately we want to be a little bit more inspired by the way those things apply in the real world. And I think like one of the things that we've seen come out of that in the, in the industry writ large is in the field of robotics, where people are like, I can do computer vision. Like, cool, but all of the problems are actually like really weird edge cases. Like all the problems are you can detect people, but not if they fall down in front of your car. And actually, <laughs> you need to detect the people if they fall down in front of your car. Like, well, that's hard because that looks kind of like a cat. And you're like, well, you actually probably shouldn't hit cats either with your car. I say this because <laughs> Pittsburgh is sort of the global center of uh, autonomy. Uh, we have Four self-driving car companies that start with the letter A testing cars on the road here. That's just four that start with A. So uh, we're doing a lot <laughs> of self-driving here in the city. And um, so anyway, so I came to I came to Pittsburgh and the job they had for me, uh, my background is in systems and network engineering. Um, I had been a chief technology officer at a small uh, internet service provider in New Mexico for a number of years. Um, back in the dawn of the internet, like we had a statewide network before there was an internet and we plugged the internet into it. Like the National Science oh, wow. Foundation came to us and we're like, hey, you seem like you have a network. Can we plug this internet thing in? I don't know. It seems legit. We'll try it. See, see, if, see if the kids like it. So that's what we did. And so my background was all systems and network engineering. And I came here and they said, we have this, this data processing pipeline for targeting ads. You should probably figure out how to make that work reliably and say, okay, how hard can it be? How hard can it be? How hard? Famous can it be? last words. So yeah, 11 years later, uh, um, on it. my role now is uh, head of uh, MLSRE. So I actually founded the group globally to do reliability engineering for SRE at, at Google. So um, we, have, we have two halves of it, sort of internal and external. So half of my staff work on the cloud AI stuff. Um, which all of the problems are the same, but the context is really different, right? Like uh, one of the things we try to be conscious of is um, things are a little bit different at Google. It's not better, it's not worse. They're just like, it, sometimes sometimes we have problems that are far simpler and sometimes we have problems that are far more complex. So, you know, concretely, we have a massive amount of data, but because we are one tightly knit engineering organization, we can collaborate in ways. So like if, if you write code that breaks my application, I just I just like message you and like, hey, your code broke my application. Please roll it back, and you do. But that's not how the it's not how like if you're if you're another corporation, like we need I need to have nothing to do with you. And the use cases externally far less data, but far more complex use cases and far less simplifiable or predictable use cases. So we've got the cloud side now. We've got the internal side where. Um, I think uh, you know lots of people you all have talked to over the years. Uh, I'm sure, like the tradition is, I have, a, I have a problem. I build a model. I want to keep updating my model. I'm going to build some infrastructure to update my model. Okay, now yes. I'm an infrastructure team for my model, and so is everyone else. So now, like, and we saw that too within the different product areas at Google. Like, you would have multiple teams inside of the Geo group doing machine learning, multiple teams inside of search doing machine learning, multiple teams inside of ads doing machine learning. But the ads folks, because they're a money, you know, they're a money oriented, they're a, they're a profit center. So they're like, that's too expensive. So years before many of the other product areas, they were centralizing infrastructure for training, for quality analysis and for serving. And so that's why I got my start on the ad stuff. So there's a little bit of context. Uh, I don't know, what, what did I leave out or what did I not hit that would be useful to hear about? 
I mean, I, I think, I think, I think you got it all in there. I, I you know, one thing I really love that you seized on um, and, and mentioned is that things aren't better at Google. They're just different. And yeah. I think a lot mm -hmm. of times, you know, in our conversations that we have in the community, I work at a small startup for context, you know, we're looking at the Googles, we're looking at the blog posts and they're saying, man, we want to be there someday. Um, and it's, it's, it's helpful to hear someone like you who's been there for so long say, hey, we know we're different. You should know we're different too. My question to you is, and this is kind of getting into the content of your talks, um, which I love for their, you know, practical, you know, <laughs> no, no holds barred description of reality is, you know, for a lot of us sitting outside Google, where we want to go is what Google is doing. You're mm -hmm. at Google, you're leading a group, you're leading a team that's doing industry cutting edge work. What's the vision of the world that you paint for them in terms of um, where you would like SRE and ML or just in terms of you know, building strong systems in ML that are not, um, you know, uh, failure prone in any sense or anything like that. Like, what kind of vision do you do you, uh, paint? I'm curious. Yeah. So uh, when I think about when I think about this problem, um, you know, I want to highlight. I think we're at the very beginning of this. So when I talk to people, like I don't have a like my undergraduate degrees in philosophy. I have a graduate degree in computer science, but it's only a master's, and it's in like network engineering. It's you know, uh, it was pre TCP offload segmentation. Doing that, like we were doing that to prove that this was like good for receive side interrupt mitigation. That has nothing to do with machine learning. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I'm sitting here like. You know, I can talk to you about uh, Wittgensteinian skepticism about meaning and what Kripke said about that. And we can talk a little bit about that. Or we can like, you know, pick up how the Altion ASNIC cards back in the day where it had like a MIPS 4000 series processor. But not again, so like then bring this to machine learning. Well, what we see happening in the industry is um, like, I think that like, NeurIPS, the focus on uh, machine learning is always algorithmic. It's always at the development of new algorithms, the development of new model structures, because that's at the beginning too. But what I find is that like the, you know, inside we think of it as productionization, but the commercialization of useful technology is lagging so far behind. Like the, the cutting edge techniques that aren't baked into software, that aren't baked into services that normal people can't take advantage of, aren't that useful. They're super useful for, you know, Baidu and Amazon and Facebook and Google and Microsoft who can like hire, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 PhDs and roll up a system with the latest. Like when you see the BERT stuff, you're like, okay, cool. Google did BERT, great. And honestly, the idea of adding vectors, semantically meaningful vectors is cool, right? You're like, how do I put that? And it's problematic as well, but, um, but how does that help like what is that? What is the use of that beyond a huge search company? Right, Yandex can take advantage of that. Great, but like, can you? Like, I don't know. Like, is that a useful? Whereas at the same time, it, what I see is it's the barriers to innovation. Um, so I see like you know I see smart engineers without a machine learning background who are doing something else. Like they're working on docs or they're working on an online tax processing application or they're they're just doing something else. They're building. An application. They're running a factory. They're running a, you know, uh, you know, they're running SAP for their company to try to predict the manufacturing inputs and outputs. Okay, so what does machine learning do for those people? And the answer is right now not a whole lot. Like it's too esoteric. It requires too much specialized knowledge. It's not packaged. 
And so the offensive thing to the people who know more about this than I do and care more about this is I actually think the algorithms aren't interesting because I think we have mm. too much backlog of useful technology that hasn't been made available to enough people. And so I'm less interested in the cutting edge of algorithms, in part because maybe I'm not that smart, in part because like way awesomer people are doing great work at that, and I, I trust them and I wish them well. But I'm more interested in how do we get the junior engineer six months, like she is a software engineer working in a new role or a new company. She's been on the job for six months. So she kind of knows the landscape. She shipped a few features. She's got an idea. She's just sitting there. She's like, I want to make this better. And here's how I read about some, Sally has a basic familiarity with, you know, unsupervised learning or supervised learning, basic idea of what you can do, but nothing beyond that. How do we go from that to, I got a junior engineer working on an application with an idea and some data. And within a short amount of time, and my objective would be within a week or two, has a functional experimental model that can do or not do something in a production-ready environment so that iteration can happen. Um, and I will say, honestly, like, that's my goal inside and outside of Google. We also don't have something that is that easy, that is that sophisticated, that is that generalizable. So yeah. that's where I think... Like, that's what I'm excited about. And I'm excited to see where we go with this. Like, one of the reasons I was interested in this conversation, I'm interested in this whole idea, you know, whether we stick with, you know, this particular approach to it or not, is the idea of ML ops. Like, I don't love operations because the, there's some negative connotations for me, but I love the idea of productionization of these technologies being a separate task that needs to be done on itself because it enables innovation, not because it makes things just reliable or not because it takes things that already exist and makes them boring, but because it creates new things that haven't been put together yet. So I'm excited about that. I think mm. we're at the very beginning of that. That's so interesting that you say, and I think you're preaching to the choir here on like the algorithm is as I just interviewed uh, this guy, Joe Reese, last Wednesday. And he said, you know, the algorithm is the easy part in his mind. It was like actually getting that out and making business, like getting business value from that is the hard part. Yeah. And really where he feels like, yeah, just like you said, it's, I, and I love this sequence of events. It's like you start with an algorithm or you start trying to tune something and then you go on to the infrastructure and then you go on to seeing like, Hey, how can I have this, uh, have this work for me and so it's it's fascinating to think about that idea and i'm i mean we see it in the landscape right there's so many different tools that are trying to come up to make this jump that you're talking about this junior engineer who's been at the job for six months and she has an idea and she can now put something into production a few weeks later yeah. like that is everyone's goal I just wonder, like playing a little bit devil's advocate here, do you really think that's possible? Yeah, I do. I, I do because I think so. Uh, so hard, you only do hard things like when you decide to do them and then they look hard, but you break them down in steps. So let's just break it down. Like, what do we need for that? Well, okay. Like, so, um, you know, what's the beginning of that and the end of that pipeline? And let's talk about what's in the middle. Well, at the beginning is an idea uh, and some data. Right. So we're like, oh, okay, well, having some data already is that's a barrier to a lot of organizations that I've talked to uh, inside and outside of Google, yeah. you know, for sure. And like, having enough do, data. Yeah. Well, do you have your data? Do you have enough data? I mean, I, yeah, I do see, but like, 
That's actually, so I think uh, just as a little, uh, you know, diversion here, I think ML gets a bad rap on that uh, because I think uh, in particular, enterprises have been overestimating how much data they had and the value of that data for decades. Um, I remember working with, mm. I won't say who, but a large power company in the US who had an Oracle database with a single table with like a few hundred thousand rows in it. I'm like, that's a spreadsheet, kids. Like, that's not, a, that's not an Oracle data. And they were spending like half a million dollars a year on that software. I'm like, hey, you can do that. Over on that desktop right there. Like, what are you doing? And they're like, no, it's it's enterprise grade. It's serious. So I think like this idea of like, do we have a lot of data? Like that happens, like all of us sort of, and I see it happen inside of Google where people are like, we have a lot of data. And we're like, cool, does a lot have a number? And like, sometimes you'll see two people who say they have a lot of data and one of them has like 16 petabytes and one of them has five terabytes and one of them has a hundred gigabytes. And I'm like, well, okay. Those are actually just different. Not, those are really different numbers. But anyway, so data, you need enough data and you need to know what it is. And at the end of it, you need a model that is served, a model where you can look up something in it. And that could be like a batch process where you throw a bunch of new examples at it and you get categories out of it because it's, you know, that's what it's doing. Or it could be a prediction, you know, categorization labeling system. So that's what you need. The steps between there, like at a simple basis, they're not that complicated, right? You need a data acquisition system, you need a metadata system, uh, and that'll come in later. You need a feature storage system and probably a model storage system and a model metadata system. You need a training system. Uh, you need a quality analysis system and a, you know, syncing to serving, gating the syncing to serving, and you need a serving system and you need to loop those things together. Okay. I mean, I know that's a lot, like each one of those, you're like, each one of those is a lot of stuff, <laughs> which it is. But in the end, it's also just a thing, right? And so I think that the secret here isn't, can we do this? Uh, we can do this. Lots of entities can do this. And collectively, the internet, like as, you know, as my friend says about Wikipedia, it's proof that the internet has a lot of spare time on its hands. The internet has a lot of spare time on its hands. So absolutely. Right? So we can do this. The question is really, can we get organized around a narrower set of use cases? And that's where I see the problem. Just like the algorithms folks, the systems folks, we talk ourselves into, well, it has to be able to do everything. No, it does not have to be able to do everything. We need to make, and this is the problem where we don't have enough product leadership in this space, um, you know, because a lot of people who are engineers are like, I, I am an engineer. I don't want to talk to product managers. That would that would debase me. That would. I'm like, well, but what we need to decide is what are the most common use cases and what is the smallest collection of those that can meet the largest number of needs because that's where we should start. And I think these are, like there are simplifying assumptions we can make, but to do that, we're going to leave out people. And so people are clamoring to not be left out. And as a result, we're not, we're not making as much progress as I'd like to see. So, but I, I think this is doable. Uh, yeah, sorry for the rambly answer, but I think this is absolutely doable. I just think that we need to make some tough product choices to get the earlier versions of these things out the door. I know Vishnu has a question. I see him itching to ask, but yeah, I just yeah, wanted no. to ask. I just wanted to ask before to jump in and snake him on this is this, <laughs> this idea that I mean, you laid out a, a few things there, right? And we were talking to the head of ML at Monzo Bank, and his whole theory on it was like 
just get something out. It doesn't matter if it's perfect or if it's the maturity level two and you don't have a feature store and you don't have like the monitoring, just start serving, see if you can make sure that there is a possibility to get it out. I want to know how you feel about that. Like, does it need to be all shiny? No, absolutely not. No, strongly, strongly agree. Okay. Um, on one of our internal systems. So you think about that pipeline that I just described, the sort of left to right data in and serving at the end and everything in between. On one of them, we started at the end. Uh, we said, here's a serving system. And we did that for two reasons. Um, one reason was uh, TensorFlow already existed and some TensorFlow training frameworks already existed inside of Google. And so people had adopted those with these bespoke pipelines. So their own orchestration, their own like data storage and like it just like people just did some stuff. But at the end, they produced the save model format where they're like, okay, like whatever happened before this moment, I have a save model. We're like, cool, well, what we'll do is we'll build a global, incredibly high throughput, um, really reliable serving system. Now it assumes that all this other stuff exists. And like, if that other stuff didn't exist, that would fail, right? If I, if I, declare, here's my serving system for things that people can't produce. Well, that's not going to be a very popular serving system, right? But this was the serving system where people were already producing it. And the benefit of that was it was a very narrow, like it's a, it's a small problem. I'm not saying it's not like it is now a very, very, very large serving system because it's enormously popular inside of Google. But at the time, we're just like, I don't know, it's a serving system. You give us the model, we look up answers into it. We copy it around the world. We have you know TensorFlow model servers that look things up in it. It doesn't do that much, but the stuff it does, it does well. And so totally agree. That's a completely reasonable approach. But then the question is, like, I think what we learned from that is the value is the APIs, the value is the interfaces. And so mm, you look at like a file format, that's just an interface, right? It's a set of constraints. And so I think what you're going to see is let's define boxes of functionality and let's define as clearly as we can APIs before and after, and then let people, which, which actually solves the customization problem because you're wandering through this pipeline and you're like, I don't like your box here. And you're like, cool, you don't have to like my box. You have to take the thing that comes out of this thing, do something to it and produce the thing that goes into this thing. I don't really actually care how you do that. I can't make reliability guarantees about what happens when you wander off and go run some code on some computers and hope for the best. But I can actually make reliability guarantees about the segments before and after that point. And so even then you're providing some value when people want to, you know, jump out in the middle of the pipeline. So I totally agree. That, I mean, I think that, that, that point of, I don't like your box. I think that summarizes like 99% of the complaints that anybody has with any ML tool, with yeah. any ML framework, whatever it is. I just don't like the way you set up, you know, your process. And I have a different opinion on how to do it. Yeah. Right. And I think a lot of the, the quetching that goes on in the community about, you know, how we are doing machine learning or, or how we could do it better, uh, particularly compared to other you know, software engineering things, it's just that we haven't coalesced around that, around yeah. that, a vision of like, okay, what are the boxes, right? And yeah. the standards are being set. You know, I want to go back to what you said about product leadership and the kinds of people that need to be involved um, in order for machine learning to be, you know, to realize its potential for all the people that can use it. Um, I think one, as just a short observation, the machine learning hiring process and how that gets done is, is, is kind of odd, right? I mean, you know, in the sense that we have this ML scientist, we have the amorphously defined ML engineer, 
uh, and then we bring in, you know, software engineer, machine learning. We yeah. have site reliability engineers. We have all these different roles. Uh, now MLOps is becoming a thing. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we start to see MLOps engineers. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, as you, yeah, right. Data engineers get a part of it. So, I mean, with all these different titles, I think it's, it's hard for particularly companies that think about, you know, structured organizations, right. And, and org charts in terms of how to make ML useful in the context of an org chart, right. Yeah. How, how do you think about that challenge as you build, um, you know, your team uh, for, you know, at, at Google and, you know, what advice would you give to other people who are trying to bring in um, ML professionals into their companies to make ML useful for them? Yeah, that's, I think it's a really good and important question. And, you know, in one of my other hats, I run the um, hiring committees for SRE for Google globally. Wow. And so, oh, like, I have some, I spend some time thinking about um, staffing. I think so. We're really fortunate. Um, like there's a lot of smart people out there and a bunch of smart people want to work uh, with us. And I think like, uh, like I don't want to, I don't want to underestimate the importance of just having like really capable people who are really excited to learn. Cause that's not, you know, I'm not saying that like there aren't a lot of places that where that's true, but it's not true for every company in every, you know, location and every role. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty cognizant of that, but I think, uh, I think we need to remember that this is also not different from some other subfields in computer science. So you think about like how obsessive, you know, HR professionals were about people knowing some particular version of Java. And you're like, really? Yeah. Is that the thing they need to know? Or like, like how many people are really getting jobs because they're Ruby on Rails expertise today? Like, and how many people were hired because they're like, I am the Ruby on Rails genius. And so, and I, over and over again, like, do you know some particular version of Cisco IOS? Or do you know, like, some particular version of, you know, this particular, you know, Ingress database going back in the day? And, like, so I think, like, as an industry, we should recognize we're doing the same thing a little bit. And we should stop and we should think about, well, what can people do and what can they learn? Because, like, let's, let's, I, we're, I think, uh, I call this the sort of MySpace problem. MySpace was going to be forever until it was gone. And so much okay. of the so much of the internet is like everything's changing all the time, but we're all convinced that the the today is the future. Like today is the today's tomorrow's yeah. past is actually like everything's gonna be different, but it feels like the omnipresent future. Like this is it's all gonna be like this, but it's not, right? Like ML infrastructure jobs is not gonna look like this in five years. And I want people to be thinking like five years because you don't hire people for six months. I mean, you probably, if you're lucky, you can keep people for a few years. I, you know, So that's why I think five years. I'm like, well, in five years, what kind of skills do people need? Um, and so when I think about my teams, like most of the people who work on reliability engineering for machine learning at Google do not have a machine learning background. I would say that there are like, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of five or eight percent of the people globally working on ML reliability engineering who have any wow. graduate level education in machine learning, you know, at the master's PhD level. That's huge. And you're like, that's wow. that's wild, right? Like this is like Google does a lot of this. These are the people doing it serious at scale. Like, why is that? Because, and I think the the issue is. Like, let's go back to talking about how machine learning pipelines fail. Machine learning pipelines mm. do fail in some idiosyncratic ways, but those are ways you can learn. Like, I don't have a PhD in machine learning, and I'm like, well, what I know is subtle changes in the distribution of the data 
affect these outcomes in ways that normal data processing pipelines are not affected by that. But like, cool, like that's a thing you can just learn. Like it's not impossibly complex. You do not need a PhD in machine learning to, to know that. But what you do need is some thoughtful understanding of how the dependencies of the pipeline have changed to be much more, much more dependent on the data itself than some other data processing pipelines. So if you're computing tax tables or you're like calculating how much people owe, you're like, if I change every third seven to an eight, you'll get wrong answers, but it won't be subtly wrong in a way that's difficult to understand, catastrophically bad in some cases and really like fine in other cases. Whereas right. if I drop all the data from Latin America, well, then I'm going to think Spanish is only spoken in this weird, like, you know, uh, now apologies to the people in Spain, niche accent uh, from this <laughs> European country. And I, like, and I will draw wrong conclusions about vocabulary, about what people buy, about what people search for and what people care about, because, and I may, and globally, I might have only dropped 6% of my total data. And I'd be like, ah, it's fine. But like now all of a sudden, everything is wrong, but everything is completely wrong for a small subset of people. And everything's fine for like English speakers in Canada or like, you know, like they won't even notice that anything went wrong. So anyway, like, I guess going back to the hiring point, I, I try to hire for people who are excited to learn this stuff uh, much more than I hire for people who have a deep formal background in it. I do think it's valuable to try to learn how to read academic papers um, but I actually think that's valuable in, you know, systems in general, in software engineering in general. I think like papers we love has a cult following because it's it's enormously helpful to learn how to read papers. And so, um, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of that. Well, I think it's huge showing. that you're talking about five to eight percent of the SREs that are working on machine learning at Google don't have machine learning backgrounds because so many times I see people coming into the community and asking, hey, how much machine learning should I actually know here? Like mm -hmm. I'm coming from mm -hmm. software engineering. I, I don't know what I should know. Should I like learn how to train a model? You know, like these kind of if things. I had a, if I had a dime for every time, how to learn deep learning and AI, an article on that was posted on Medium and Hacker News, I would be, I would be richer than Elon Musk. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's amazing. Well, and I do think like, so when I think that I'm like, is it useful to train a few models? Yeah, it is. Of course it is because it gives you uh, empathy for your users. But but I think like I, I think it's right to think about modeling teams as being a separate subspecialty. And so I think what we're doing is we're reifying and centering modeling and saying like the people who know how to construct models, that's the important part of our whole industry and everything else is just something else. And I'm like, well, that's a little bit strange because if we're good at this, if we're successful, so let's let's pretend this stuff works because uh, sometimes it does, right? I've noticed this. Occasionally, the machine learning works a little bit. So let's assume it works. We're going to want to use it for a lot of things, right? If mm -hmm. we want to use it for a lot of things, the biggest problem in machine learning is going to be building and operating serving systems for it. It's not going to be modeling because every single model ah. you build, you will look up a hundred times, a thousand times per operation you spent in training a million times, right? So what's that? What's the actual at scale problem with machine learning? Building scalable serving systems. What's the next problem? Detecting subtle quality problems before you yeah. ship them to those scaled out machine learning serving systems. Okay, neither of those problems, like the second problem does have like, you need to think about how do you do sub slices of, you know, you, if you don't know what a golden set is, or you don't know how to talk about 
you know, uh, aggregate loss in subslices, or, you know, you, do, you wouldn't know how to look at subsets of your data. Well, okay, you're probably not going to get very far. So if you're basically like, you know, if you're a sysadmin who's never really thought about data, you're going to have a really hard time doing something sensible with that quality piece that I just measured. Um, but I think like, if you're curious about those things, it's not, you know, as the as the uh, uh, rocket scientists I know say, it's not brain surgery, as the neurosurgeons say, it's not computer <laughs> science, wait, it is computer science. <laughs> everybody thinks something else is harder, but, but I just think like it's something we can learn and we should learn it. Um, so I think like uh, if we're successful, we need many, many more people who can make sensible choices about how to productionize these pipelines and keep them running. And those are gonna be people who are thoughtful about data storage systems and people who are thoughtful about scaled out, you know, uh, pipeline processing systems and people who are thoughtful about serving systems. And like, how many modeling folks do you need? You need some, but you know, they're, they're the, they're the small minority if we're successful. So mm. do you feel like there will be a point, like going back to this idea of there's not enough product managers in the field right now, and we don't have a standard like operating procedure. Do you think that it will be a point when you, where we'll get to, maybe it's a year down the road or five years down the road where it's like, okay, yeah, if you want to do machine learning, this is the standard way of doing it. I th so I think, well, uh, I think it'll be, there will be more standard ways to do it, but I think you already see this at the libraries and framework spaces, right? So when TensorFlow shipped, like, was TensorFlow easy to use and understand? Did everybody, like, I mean, it was for, like, as far as I can tell, Jeff Dean, like, computes graphs in his head and thinks this is a really straightforward way of representing <laughs> problems. And the rest of the world is like, I don't. Wait. <laughs> so what happens here is like, well, then you compute the graph and then, like, then the things happen. And you're like, okay. Right? So, so but was it enormously popular? Yes. Okay, why? Uh, well, it was a complete solution that worked, that had pretty clean interfaces. Like you could understand how to use it. You might not be able to understand, like it might be tricky to troubleshoot. It might be hard to represent your problem in it. Mm. It was a complete solution and you could use it. And people like migrated to it like crazy. PyTorch, same thing. Like is, is PyTorch the most sensible, most straightforward thing? And even simple things like, you know, NumPy stuff, like you look at like, people are clamoring for, give me software to solve my problem. And so I think about like, I think about libraries coming first, then frameworks coming next, and then services. And the big problem that we have with services is um, everybody's like finding some orchestration engine. We're gonna like find something that orchestrates. We're gonna take Apache Beam and we'll slap it on top of the stuff and I'm sure it'll work yeah. out. And sometimes it does, but like, I think like the, the, the primary problem with machine learning uh, services is orchestration. It's knowing how much of your data have you processed? Where are the data as they're traveling through the system? Where are the errors piling up or where is the throughput going down? Like these are just tricky problems for any processing pipeline, right? If I have like, you know, a terabyte of data and I want to read it and do something with it, something's going to get stuck somewhere. And if I parallelize it on a bunch of machines, then it will be hard to troubleshoot. And that's an orchestration problem. But so I think the answer, the short answer to your question is no, I don't think we'll get to a thing. But I think since people are clamoring for these things, we'll get to several things. Um, yeah. And we'll continue to sort of, 
you know, we'll find some things that meet certain use cases really well and people will clamor to them and then they'll build those into other use cases. We'll find some things that are a little bit more general but harder to use and they'll either die out because they won't get a critical mass of people who use them or they'll simplify in a couple of cases to make it easier for people to use. But this is just, this is how software systems evolve, I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that makes sense. That would follow the trends of history, of our short history and in the yeah. software world, uh, relatively short considering um, how long the earth's been around. And I'm sure we could get into a nice philosophical discussion with you about all that good stuff, but let's go back to the idea of how machine learning breaks. And the idea that I think it's fascinating how you pointed out, these ways that it breaks are not necessarily machine learning specific ways, mm -hmm. right? You do have some of them. I'm not saying all of them. I think you, in one of your talks, you laid out like 19 different ways that you saw things breaking. And like, can we just go over that, the ways that they're breaking that you see a lot of and how there's the machine learning specific ways that they break and then other ways that are not machine learning that we should be watching out for? Yeah, I think so. Uh, this is work that I did for the OPML conference, Usenix OPML conference with a colleague, Daniel Papazian. And um, Daniel and I looked at, um, you know, so uh, um, putting on my SRE hat, like Google's got a, a really, uh, I appreciated a good culture of, um, you know, retrospectives when you have outages and looking through, writing it up and just being like, okay, had a thing, write it up. Uh, this blameless postmortem culture, which I really appreciate because it sort of treats these problems as systems problems. So we looked through and because we do it really systematically and consistently, we had more than 10 years of outages on one particular system. Now, like, let's be honest, it's one system. And so like, who knows how representative it is? It's one system, it does one kind of thing, it has data that come from one kind of place, it's at Google, but mm -hmm. the outages do span, depending on how you think about it, two or three completely different versions of the same system. Like the system mm -hmm. that's solving the same problem, but swapping out all of the chunks in the middle over those 10 years. And so we're like, we've got some reason to believe it's interesting data. I can't promise it's representative. and. You know, so Daniel came up with this way of like hand analyzing these because he had worked on the system for like eight or 10 years. So he knew like he could just read the read the postmortems and say, oh, that's a this, that's a this. And so we went back and forth a little bit and he came up with a useful way of categorizing them. And so one of the things I challenged us to do is say like, hey, can we look at which ones of these would really only have been a failure that could happen in a machine learning system? Whereas which ones of these are just like, bad things happen to good data, even when it means well, right? And so like, there were quite a lot of that latter and the majority of the outages and the majority of the serious outages had nothing to do with machine learning. Um, and so, so, so that gave us some thought and going back to, you know, the question about skills and the, you know, uh, Vishnu that you were asking, like, who do you need on these? Like what we conclude, we, it was weird. We hadn't gone into this thinking like, oh yes, we as engineers, we will make a recommendation on the staffing roles for future ML team. But that's what came out. We're like, well, if you really wanted to do this better, what you would be hiring is folks with distributed system skills because distributed system skills are the things that are showing up that are causing the most frequent and the biggest outages yeah. on these uh, pipelines. And they are things like, you know, and some of those would only happen to us or people running it at huge scale. Like uh, there are CPU bugs, uh, salud. 
there are CPU bugs that you can run into only when you like get to really, really big scale. And so we're like, okay, you're very unlikely to run into weird CPU bugs that no one else has run into. But you know, there are other things like memory errors or you know, the process just doesn't start. Why does the process not start? I don't know, you got scheduled on a machine that doesn't want to start that process. You should reschedule that task. Who knows how to reschedule tasks on a distributed basis? Those would be people with distributed system skills, right? Not ML. So yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to like actually go through the specific failures. Uh, no, we'll we tell found. everybody who's listening, if they do want to check that out, go watch the video, that OpML video, which is incredible. It takes you through that whole journey. I just wanted to touch on that because I felt like it was so important. Yeah, yeah. So I know Vishnu's got another question. I see it. I see it in his eyes. <laughs> right. you know, people, people always say this about me when they see me. I got so many stories about how my face just tells exactly what I'm thinking. But um, I mean, I think the point, of the, the point you made about the retrospectives and that culture of bringing people together to analyze what went wrong, the role of failure. Um, I think, I think that's, it's, I mean, it's really, it's, it's remarkable that you guys have that, that, that culture. It's always, you know, I think everyone, we all want to strive for that kind of that culture where we, you know, we learn from the past, right? Because a lot of times what I see in, in organizations is we're like, okay, we're going to win the, we're going to win, you know, we're going to win the world next year. And to do that, we, these are next year's needs, right? Without really considering what happened in the, what happened in the past. And so I kind of, you know, I kind of, my question to you kind of is, is like, you know, as a, as an engineering leader, What's your advice to other engineering leaders in terms of how to make that reflection on your needs, your team needs and the failures, particularly perhaps in the machine learning context or, or, or not? How do you make that actionable? Um, and how do you make that, how do you ta- make that tactical and how do you apply it? Yeah, so I think it's, a, it's an important cultural shift for many organizations. Like I've certainly been at places where we had a big outage and my boss is like, who's at fault? Because we got to fire someone. Do, do we? Like, yeah. and, and uh. sometimes it would be like, literally one time it was for lightning. It was like, who should we fire for the lightning that struck the fiber? I'm like, uh, I'm not convinced that we should fire someone for lightning. In fact, I'm convinced we shouldn't fire anyone for lightning. Um, but I think like it's, but I know that that culture of, um, like, I, I think there's two aspects that we talked about. One is there's a culture of blame. And the second is, there's this uh, sort of uh, inability or unwillingness to look at past failures. Uh, And I think they're a little bit connected, right? Like I think like if you wanna survive in an organization that's blame centric, you better not spend too much time talking about what went badly, right? Because that's just calling Mm. attention to yourself. And so I would say like the ability to look at what went badly and do better is increased when you can uh, shift away from a culture of blame the way the way I've done that, and I do that sort of, uh, it, you know, I do that in my in my life, parenting, but also like at work, is say like, hey, let's focus on systems problems. Let's have a systems thought here. Um, and so, when do you want to blame someone? You want to blame someone who intentionally goes around the systems repeatedly to try to create outages or create unnecessary risk. That's that's just like unprofessional bad behavior. You tell someone to stop doing it, they keep doing it. You can absolutely terminate someone for that. But that almost never happens. Like in general, like it's weird. maybe I'm just a wild-eyed optimist, but in general, like we work with people who want to do good work, who are excited mm-hmm. to do well, and then they make a mistake. And so like you look at someone who made a mistake and causes a big outage. This is like 
you know, I shipped bad code, I shipped the wrong version of the thing, like in an ML-centric thing, like my, I changed the definitions of the features in training, but not in serving, right? So you get like feature mm -hmm. servings, uh, you know, uh, training serving feature skew. Super easy to do, boneheaded mistake, right? Like, but it's super easy to do. And so when, when I look at that, I say like, okay, cool. Why is that easy to do? Why is that possible to do? Like what made it possible for you to, like, I, we don't say like you did everything right. We say like, okay, you made a mistake and something made it possible for you to make that mistake. Something made it easy for you to make that mistake. So if I put a big red button on your desk that says, this will break everything, don't press it. And you lean over and press it. I'm like, is it your fault or is it my fault? Like, I think it's the button's fault. Like the button shouldn't be on your desk. And so <laughs> that's what I really encourage engineering leaders to do is adopt that systems approach because I think that takes the blame out of this. That, that puts us back in a mode of like, let's talk a little bit about what led us to be able to make these mistakes. Um, and then you have an interesting, then you have to have the courage of your convictions, which is usually what happens after that is people say like, well, there's a legacy system here and it doesn't have safeguards. And there's another thing here that didn't know about this thing. And you're like, okay, taking a huge step back, the right thing to do is completely rewrite both of those things because those are both terrible. Like that software is not safe. Uh, that deployment system is not safe. Like this particular configuration management system is not safe. So you see that and you're like, okay, cool. Do we have the time to do that? If we don't, then we say like, well, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's mitigate this. Let's make this particular kind of failure harder to do. And then let's publicly acknowledge to ourselves that this kind of thing is probably going to happen again in a slightly different way because we didn't make the investment here. But so, mm -hmm. I, so I think having that, like once you take the blame out of it, you can, you can travel through the past more often because the next time something happens, people are like, hey, let me pull up the last three outages of the this, of this system. Hey, look, what about this thing? Um, and so we do that. There's a, there's a team at Google whose job it is to try to find correlated weird big failures across multiple teams, across multiple PAs, oh, wow. and try to like make the case to invest in the underlying, underlying, underlying software. So if you think about like, our system for RPC dispatch, right? Like Protobuf, uh, the way we dispatch RPCs among systems. If there's a fundamental weakness or problem in that system, no particular PA, no particular engineering team, no particular application team is going to be like, oh, well, I should fix the RPC system because it's like, it's too big. They're in the wrong place. They just like build some scaffolding around it, put in some safeguards and hope for the best. And so we look at that and I think other teams can do that as well. So that's what I would say is like, take the blame out of it, uh, turn it into a systems approach and that'll unlock the value of the past. And once the value of the past is unlocked, the future can be a lot better. That's, I think I, well, thank you for that sage wisdom because the reason I, I ask that is, you know, I think, you know, every, every professional is a leader in some, some sense, right? Yeah. You know, in building a culture. And, but I think particularly so for machine learning professionals, because we are advancing a new technology, something people don't fully understand, it's incumbent on us yeah. to really be, you know, leaders in our organizations a little bit more so than others who might have more clearly defined roles, responsibilities, and results for the organization. And so I think a lot of times, you know, I think ML professionals can struggle under the weight of that. And it's, it's I think, the things I took away from what you just said are, you know, absolutely the systems approach, avoiding blame. And I think overall, just a structured approach to problems 
and how you solve them and think about them is that can help you deal with all of the um, just all the confusion that can be such a such a part of this industry. Um, that structure, in, you know, that I see, you know, in your talks and, and and just in general, in the companies that do this well, that do machine learning well, they are taking a structured approach to thinking about problems, and they're putting it down on paper or they're letting others know what the structure is. So a lot to learn here, and I think you know, I think our community will definitely have a lot to yeah. Lot and to I think there's an interesting point that you're talking about on like the system design problem is it's the red button's fault for being there, right? Like. That reminds me a lot of a TED talk that I saw, and I cannot for the life of me remember what it was exactly, but it talked about the systematic corruption in a place um, in the government in, uh, forgive me if it wasn't in Albania, but I get, the, I get this strong feeling that they were talking about in Albania. And the way that they fixed it was not by paying the government officials more or, um, or like punishing them more when there was corruption that was found out about the way they fixed it was that the government officials were in this like little phone booth and it was dark and it was all by themselves. And the design was the problem. It yeah, was wow. that they had to bring in these um, a much more like designed or a thoughtful design of that so that there wasn't this very much like isolated situation. And yeah. So I'll try to get that TED talk and link it in the description after we t after we're done. And it's been a few years since I saw it, but it's very much that. Like it's the design that you're looking at that's the problem, not the person who is there and being tempted or that. And so I I love the way that you're looking at that. And it's really hard for me to not jump into this and go totally off track but just ask about the famous email that has been circulating around from Google that got somebody fired and how like that plays into this. And I know we came to talk about MLOps and I know that you are at Google right now. So if you want to just decline commenting at all, then that is totally cool also. But I just, I wonder how that plays into all of this. It's really hard for me not to ask that question. Yeah, no, and it's a fair question. I think it's on a lot of people's minds. Um, I should say, like, I can't add much. Like, I, I I don't work in the research organization. And, like, you know, I think from the outside, a lot of people think, like, oh, you're at Google. So I'm like, I don't know, it's like 200,000 people. Like, yes, this, people do some things some places. Like, I'm not saying I don't know anything about it, but I actually don't know anything more than what you all know about it. But what I can say is, like, Two, two things that, that matter to me um, as, as an engineering leader at Google. Um, one of them is that, that Google, and not just Google, but this whole industry should be a place where people from any kind of background can do their best work, limited only by their abilities and limited by their effort. Um, and this is super important to me. I spend a lot of time on it. Um, and you know, I, I spend a lot of uh, effort on it um, and I'm not at all satisfied with what we at Google or we as an industry have accomplished, but it doesn't change my frustration with that. Like, so one of the things that I find uh, frustrating is regardless of what actually happened in the situation and, you know, and, and I don't really know, um, I do think like it is unquestionably true that in particular black folks in the US and women 
feel like they're unwelcome in this industry. And I think that's terrible. And I think like we collectively, all of us need to do something about that because we're squandering like ridiculous amounts of great talent by virtue of like, oh, I don't think you look like the right kind of person to do this job. It's just, it's it's completely ridiculous and it makes me upset. So that's that's one thing I can say. And I find I'm pretty saddened that that's more the case now than maybe it was three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was already a problem and, and this certainly doesn't help. And the other thing is on the role of like, I think people are lumping these together, but um, ethics and fairness in AI uh, are critical. Uh, they're just like, we, we are going to collectively get our butts handed to us by society in the form of nation states, in the form of you know, regulation, in the form of angry people if we don't get that stuff right. Because the like it's sort of like when I go back to why is homeopathy not regulated? Because it doesn't do anything. You don't have to regulate stuff that doesn't work. It doesn't matter, right? But when people started taking St. John's wort for depression and they were like, what? I have to tell my doctor I thought it was natural. I'm like, well, either it works, in which case you need to know how it works, or it doesn't work, in which case it doesn't matter. But the AI stuff works, but it doesn't work perfectly, which makes it interesting, which makes it potentially problematic. And we have to get that stuff right. On the ethics front, we need to think carefully as societies about where we want to deploy these technologies, who we want in control of them, how do we use them to democratize rather than use them to, you know, instantiate top-down control or large, whether it's nation states or whether it's large corporations, most of these technologies are benefiting the largest entities right now, but they don't have to. It's just because of some choices we've made about how we build these and deploy these and how we spread the skills for them. So I think democratizing access to this these technologies is critically important. That's on the ethics side. But on the fairness side, we all know that like, you know, what, every every model's wrong, but some models are useful. But there's a corollary to that, which is some models are racist and some models are sexist and some models are like nationalist and some models are deeply problematic, not because the people who built them are bad people. I mean, I'm sure some people who build them are bad people, but I think mostly because they didn't notice the ways in which they had built these models that weren't doing what, they, they found an easy way to get an answer. Their objective function didn't capture the entire stack of what they were trying to actually do. And as a result, we end up with super problematic situations. And what we know about that fairness is right now, the best way to have fairer models is to have a much more inclusive environment where more people are thinking about the impact of these models which takes us back to the, like, we need a really wide variety of people working on this stuff. And so for me, that's the cycle. I can't comment on the Dr. Gabru situation because I don't really know anything that's not in public, but I can say, like, it's important to me that uh, as an industry, not just Google, you know, like, I like Google, Google pays my mortgage. I appreciate that since my kids to school, that's all good. But like the industry is much bigger than us. And as an industry, like we need to be a welcoming, inclusive place for all kinds of people. Well put. Very well put. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Demetrius, you know, exactly well put. And I think, you know, um, one thing that I think you've highlighted throughout this talk is that, you know, sometimes AI doesn't work and that's frustrating. But when AI works, it creates a whole series of downstream problems that you need to be prepared to understand and take on Mm. and allocate resources to. And that could be, you know, that could be analyzing failures and it could be, it could be, you know, understanding ethics and fairness. Right. And, and I think that is a big lesson um, that, you know, for somebody like you, that's been at, that's been at Google and has seen this in production for so long. 
um, that I think the rest of us, you know, who are trying to get this into organizations that haven't used it yet, definitely kind of, um, you know, could, 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 could do a, a, could do a better job of, of, of socializing that message. Um, you know, one other, you know, I guess one kind of wrap up for final question I have personally is, you know, I think you kind of hit on this in terms of the culture of the industry writ large, not just at Google, right? Um, and in terms of transparency and trying to be honest about the way things, um, the way things might fail, mm-hmm. right? And from your experience, I'm curious, just you, you, you're certainly, you know, a historian of the technology industry with your experience in networking and just having been in this industry for a while. I mean, I think you just called me old, but that's cool. (laughs) I knew I was old. Not my words. (laughs) But uh, when you think about the trajectory of other industries and how they have managed to kind of just um, address, you know, some of the public, you know, understanding of the failures of technology, right? How do you think machine learning can learn from them? And where do you think it's different? Where do you think we're gonna confront different problems as industry compared to like, you know, cellular or networking or, or social media or any of the other sort of company, other sort of industries? Yeah, well, actually, so that's a, um, uh, my reaction to your question is now I'm depressed because <laughs> like, let, let's be honest. Do we think that the mobile computing industry uh, uh, ultimately was confronted for its value and impact on society and we had a thoughtful decision about how to adopt those technologies or do we think like people sold a bunch of stuff and now we're left with the results? Because I think it's the latter. Like, think right. do yeah. we think there was a thoughtful discussion about social networking and how those platforms both connect people but also isolate and radicalize people or do we think some people did some stuff and now we're trying to overcome what has happened to us? And like, and even going back to like, let, let's talk about the, uh, you know, the way the UK went full hog on like, let's just have the Panopticon, like Foucault's Panopticon, like there are CCTV times millions across mm-hmm. the UK, no matter where you yeah. are, you're being filmed by someone with control by the government or control. And you're like, did we have a thoughtful society-wide discussion about that in the UK? Or is that just a thing that ended up happening over time? And so I guess like, Realistically, so so my job is to predict future failure. So ultimately, I'm I'm optimistic about the chances of things going badly because I've never been disappointed yet. And so, <laughs> I, I think um, I hope we don't do that. Like I think as a society, we owe it to ourselves to try to educate ourselves a little bit and think seriously about the ways that these technologies impact society. Um, as an industry. Uh, we are closed and we are confusing and we do not simplify and explain things very well. And I think the problem with that is that, you know, legislators and, you know, executives in government and policymakers have a really hard time understanding even the basics of what we're talking about. And we make it harder than we should. So we should talk like, and in part because we're trying to impress each other and like impressing each other isn't that useful. Like I'm impressed with you, it's great. But can we explain to the city councilor over there what this means? Like, so there's some concrete examples where people are trying to do the right thing and end up doing the wrong thing. We'll talk about like elimination of bail. So in the US you have to pay money to get out of uh, jail while you're waiting for a trial because they want you to come back for the trial and the delays are long. Like 
that seems blatantly unfair because it's imprisoning people for being poor. So a bunch of people are like, let's get rid of bail. Let's let people out while they're waiting on trial. Sounds good, except some of them are not going to come back and some of them are going to commit other crimes. So right. like, okay, we're going to predict which ones will come back. I think you see the problem here. Like all of the models that people created turned out to be racist um, and predict that people with darker skin would come back at a lower rate than they actually did. Well, why did they? For lots of reasons, lots of biased reasons. But you can look through policy changes like that and say, like, we should have explained more simply to the policymakers, it is good to not charge people money to be in jail. That is unquestionably a social good. It is also important that we be thoughtful about how we do that. And here's some simple ways to understand that. So um, I hope that we do a better job than we've done in the past. Uh, um, and I'm going to try. And I think I would encourage other people to as well. And I think the way we try is to try to, at a high level, in very simple terms, explain some choices to people. We can save these data or not. We can build a model that does this, but it might have these consequences. We can build a system that does this. Here are the risks and here are the benefits. What should we do? And to actually, and I don't think there's a lot of willingness on the part of engineers to involve policymakers, but the stuff went, it, it, back to the homeopathy uh, uh, example, if this stuff I works, it's going to really work. And if it really yeah. works, we'll take it seriously. So we should take it seriously. Well, it feels like my two worlds have collided here at the end of this chat because I also have a AI ethics podcast that I do. Shameless plug for that. <laughs> and it seems like we just got right into that. And I love that you're talking about that. You're looking at it and you said it yourself. Your job is to predict future failures. And I think that one way to finish this off would, it would be really nice. I know David is not here and he loves talking with SREs about ML infrastructure. And you are like the epitome of that, right? You are the legend. <laughs> and I think that one thing that he would appreciate me asking you right now is if you have any recommendations on readings or things that he could do to better hone in his craft. Yeah, so I think... Um... I think the problem is we're so early in this that there hasn't been a lot written. So, you know, um, I'm working on a, a, a book uh, with some people to try to like just set down the basics. But as we did the research for this book, we're like, why are there not like 10 or 20 books that kind of like, you know, not perfect, but like when you think back to, you know, when you wanted to learn Python, you're like, oh, there's 20 books on Python. I can pick this one or I can pick this one. But when you want to learn how to productionize a machine learning pipeline, like, well, there's that one over there, but yeah. it looks oddly specific. There's this other one over there that looks also oddly specific. Um, so I don't think like I, I'll I'll send along a couple books, uh, you know, for the notes um, that I think are worth looking at. And there's some new ones coming out, but I think honestly, the right answer is um, twofold. One is. Um, you have to know the basics of the shape of the technology. Like, what are we doing? We're reading data. We're re reading data to update a model. The model is an in-memory data structure that's stored somewhere, or it's on an on-disk data structure if it's huge, but it's just a data structure that's stored somewhere. We'll take a representation of that data structure and send it to serving, and we'll do some computation to look some things up. You're like, is that impossible to understand? No, it's not even actually all that complicated when you make it, I'm, I'm, I'm famous for dumbing things down. There, I just dumbed down the whole thing, but you gotta know that stuff. <laughs> but then the real thing you need to know is 
how do you run a data processing pipeline that's terribly sensitive about its data? And the first part of that, there's some good, there's some good reading and there, there's some good systems work to be done. The second part of that, we're still working on. So that's what I would say. I'll, I'll send a couple links of some recently published and not so recently published books that I think are good starts. But I think honestly, anyone whose idea is, I really wanna do production engineering for ML, if that's your idea, and you're, that's your idea right now, you're probably either gonna write one of the books or be one of the first readers of one of the first books because there's not a lot out there yet. <laughs> that's so funny you say that because right on my desk, I've been reading um, because we're gonna interview on Monday, one of your colleagues at Google. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. Yep, you, yep. Did you edit any part of this? I no, know there's a I ton of acknowledgements that I'm looking for your name. You weren't involved in it, were no, you? No, 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 but that, but, it, but that is definitely one of the ones that I was gonna recommend. Uh, <laughs> All right look at. So good. Awesome. 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 Yeah. We're going to be interviewing Sarah on Monday and then Lack on January 21st, because it's so true. What you're saying is that the more that you explore, the more you realize, hmm, what's going on? Where's all this? Like, where's, where's the stuff that I can learn from? Yeah. And it's just because, so that's fine. Like, I, I you know, I know, uh, as, as Vishnu pointed out, I am in fact old. I'm not going to let that go. <laughs> But like, the, let's all remember, uh, every technology goes through this. Like the internet went through this. It used to be the case that you couldn't buy a router that was able to take an IP packet on one port and put it on the other port. What you did was you downloaded an operating system, compiled it and ran it, then downloaded some software, edited it, made it make sense, built it and ran it. And when there were bugs, you read the source code and fixed it. That's for just moving packets around, right? So. Like, I remember back when, like, you know, mail servers were just a thing you had to, like, edit and reconfigure yourself and run it. Like, nobody would do that today, or very few people would. But so it's normal that this is where we are. And it's actually, it's not a problem. Uh, it's just where we are. And so, like, I think what people should do is pivot straight from the disappointment. Like, oh, I'm really disappointed there's no book I can read. Pivot straight to really excited. I'm about to create the industry. Mm. Where we are. Problems yes. is opportunities. There it is. Yes. <laughs> That's so awesome. I mean, I, I'm having a real hard time letting you off the hook right now. I know we're uh, about nine minutes over. So last question, I promise. I, and since you are in the mode of predicting things and you have this philosophical background, I'm wondering where you're seeing the industry going in the next five years as we do create it as, as we're speaking, right? Do you mean ML in particular? Like the... Yeah, so I'm thinking more. I'm thinking more like the the tooling, and if you want to get into some ML, and because uh, one thing that I think is interesting is the idea of like managed ML services mm -hmm. and that whole thing. But let's keep it open for you. Whatever you want to answer on that. Yeah, so I think it's a. I think it's a good question. I think so. Um, you know, putting on some of the experience I've had working on the services run by Google's cloud AI division, who's really just like selling, selling services to the world, right? So that gives me the broadest view that I can have. You know, I, have some, I don't like each of us has our own context, so I don't want to pretend that that's representative, but that gives me the biggest view from the outside. And what I'm seeing is... Um, I'm seeing that there's a very small number of people who are sophisticated enough to build and run their own models and build and run their own training pipelines, but it's very small. There's a larger group of people who are able to use a 
training serving system and bring their models and sort of build a model, but build a model in a system run by other people. And I expect that to grow, but I don't expect that to be the majority of the industry. There's a huge number of people who have very specific problems that need to be solved uh, that don't really, that have two gaps. One is they don't have the skill to build or they don't have the staffing and the, and the you know, uh, technical capabilities to build the kind of integrated systems that they wanna build. But the second gap they have, which nobody talks about is they don't trust those things even when they build them. And so mm. we take a step back. One of the things I see about senior leaders of organizations, and this is not particular to machine learning, senior leaders of organizations with technical, with some form of technology stack in them, do not trust the people who are building those things. And there's a couple reasons I think for that. One is I think that most senior leaders of most organizations that have a significant technical component are themselves not educated. They don't, do not have a background in the technology. And so they're not in a position to evaluate risky from not risky, talented from not talented, like well thought out to terribly thought out. They just don't have an ability. So as a result, what they see is these things look like magic. And when they break, they ruin my whole organization. Now, ML is like that 10 times worse. Not only these things seem yeah. like magic, even the people I think do magic think these things are magic. So like nobody knows how they work, but when they go wrong, they go wrong in ways that like can bankrupt me. They go wrong mm -hmm. in ways that can like ruin my reputation, destroy everything I've built. Okay, so that trust gap is there. And I think that as an industry, um, we are going to have to find ways to bridge that trust gap so that if I'm the CEO of an airline, like airlines are famous for having like somewhat antiquated technology and it's because they're so sensitive. Like if a reservation system goes down, like the airline can't fly. And most airlines, you know, don't have a lot of cash on hand, especially today, right? And so it's not like they can tolerate a two day outage, stranding people all over the world because they had a reservation system go down. And so they're incredibly conservative. And this is not, this is not ML, this is just like, they're afraid of their reservation system. It's just a database, it's just a distributed database with some applications built on top of it. I say just, I, I, I've worked on, one of these at, at, uh, when ITA came into Google for a while. And so I know they're complicated, but it's way less complicated than some of the things we're talking about, but they already don't trust that. So when you say like, I'm gonna set your prices with ML, it's gonna be amazing. People are gonna get, like, people are gonna be happier and you're gonna make more money. They're like, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Just so, get out of my And so office. exactly. And so what we need to do, and I, I think we will do as an, or as, a, as an industry is, first, we will have organizations um, some of them like large platform providers like Google, some of them smaller providers who take the blame. They say, I will build you that application. And when it goes wrong, you will yell at me, not your staff. And so we will use the proxy of our brand as a way of getting you to trust this. Like, do you trust Google? Do you believe that we will give you credits and fix your problems? Cool. So we're going we're gonna to do that for you. And we're already doing some, like a good example of that is the call center AI stuff that Google published that like mm. handles call center mm. traffic. Like this is either terribly fascinating or terribly boring, but it basically automates the process of people chatting with and speaking with uh, call center representatives. And there are millions and millions and millions of call center representatives. And here's some technology that makes them a little bit more efficient. If it goes wrong, it can be catastrophic for those organizations. And Google says, we'll operate it for you. You'll pay us a cut of the money we save and you'll pay us for it because you'll be happy because you'll be saving money and we'll be making money. And if it goes wrong, you yell at us. That's a small step towards that. 
So we'll have some of that, but then ultimately, I think as an industry, we're going to spend much more time, and we will we will have to spend much more time on model quality assertions, where we have systems where we say, if you've got a model that does a thing that doesn't ruin your life, I can guarantee you that this next version of that model will also not ruin your life. I can't guarantee you it'll be perfect. I can't guarantee you it'll be better in every respect, but I can tell you it won't bankrupt your business. Now, we all know that's a, that is a pretty steep bar. You're like, really? You're just, for an arbitrary model, you're just gonna be able to say it's good or it's not good. But that is like, there's a, there's a North Star I'd like to get to. Wow, what a vision. I love what it. What a vision. <laughs> Thank and, you, you know, so much. Ambition. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you kind of blew my mind right there. That is awesome. I'm so happy that I squeaked in that last question. Right. I, I want to thank you, Todd, for coming on here, for enlightening us to everything that you have just like, wow, we jumped around on so many different subjects. That was great. Thanks you're so much. really good. so versatile. It's you really did. Thank incredible. you for sharing the time with us. Appreciate it. Appreciate you sharing yeah, your no, Thanks so much. Yeah. And Vishnu, thank you for coming on here and helping me out asking these poignant questions. <laughs> I will... See everybody later. Of course, like always, if you are not in our MLOps community Slack, jump in it. You can find the link to the description below. And with that, we are off.